Um, Lamentations chapter number 4, verse 11 through 22. Larry and Jorgen are going to read for us this morning. And if you want a title, I, I lied to you. I told you I was going to change the title from learning to lament, which Anthony's done. It's not. It's still learning lament. Yeah, yeah so there we go. Howdy. Okay. So I'll hold it. Okay, buddy. That's even to free. It's test is working. Okay. Here we go. Uh, uh, Lamentations 4, 11 through 22. <clears throat> the Lord gave forward unto his wrath. He poured out his heart anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundation. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophet and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean people, cried at them, Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitive and wanderers, people said among the nation, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watch for a nation which cannot save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers are swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chase us on the mountains. They lay and wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, has cap was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Zion, Edom, <laughs> you who dwell in the land of Oz, but to you also the cup shall pass, you shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Uh, Father, uh, thank you for this gathering today. I pray that you would uh, bless the speaker. Help us to know, Lord, that uh, you will bring us out of exile, and that if we're in it now, Lord, you have a good reason. Help us trust you, and help this to be real to each of us, Lord, today, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Larry and Jorgen. So we are in week four of one of the more difficult books in the canon of Scripture, and I will remind you what Anthony has told us every single week thus far uh, this isn't the normal. Um, I'm so excited to get to Galatians after this. 
This is one of Anthony's favorite books, and um, if you've ever seen or heard or known Anthony, and you go, what is up with that guy? This is why. This is why. But we wanted to be intentional in the lead up to Easter. It is the season of Lent in that historically in the church's calendar has been one of confession and repentance and lament. And so there's probably no better book to get our hearts ready for Easter than Lamentations. And as we've said, if it's in the Bible, then it matters. And so here we are going through it. And today's text shows more ripple effects of sin on society and leadership and and what hope might rise from those ashes. What's gone on in Israel is, uh, to put it bluntly, shortly, the easiest way possible is sin. Sin. But the term I would use is a continual, conscious, collective rebellion against God that had then been judged. It, It was continual, unrepentant. Uh, It was conscious. They knew what they were doing. They knew what God had said. They were going against it. It was collective in that it was the whole people. This isn't just, you know, one person off the rails. This was the people of Israel, and it was rebellion. They're saying, God, we don't want your way. In fact, we're going to war against it through our lives. And we can appreciate that the Bible shows us the world as it was and as it is, that they Uh, Writers of scripture are clear to show us the effects of sin on a society and how God judges that. There's no filters, there's no makeup, there's no gloss, there's no pretending. After the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC to Babylon. This collection of five chapters gives us the result, the lament on these people after God had judged them through the Babylonians. And so far, we've seen the case for lament. Why lament? Anthony gave that week one, how it's so lacking in our society and our worship songs and all that. You got that uh, week one, how lament is both personal and communal, that there's no easy answers to pain, that the Bible cuts away cliches. Uh, Chapter three last week anchors it all in the faithfulness of God, of who he is in his immutability, if you want a $10 word to put in your pocket, uh, that God does not change. He is immutable. His uh, mercy never fails. But in chapter four, there's a turn or return is the layers of lament stack up again. And what I think is helpful for us, at least me, to remember is that the writer of this book is very intentional with his lament. Often when we're experiencing pain, it it is just a hot mess. And there's room for that hot mess. But as this writer comes before God and is attempting to lead God's people within it, it's very intentional. It's not like me that's just kind of whiny, complainy all over the place. The letter, and Anthony mentioned this, and I'll remind us all, chapters 1 through 4 in the Hebrew language are all acrostics. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 each have 22 verses, and if you know anything about Hebrew, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so it starts and goes through each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, one line for each Letter In chapter 3, there's 66 verses, and in the middle of the book, kind of the, the meat of it, if you will, purposefully, there's three lines for each letter 
of the Hebrew alphabet. Again, teaching us something about the intentionality with which they are pursuing God and, and crying out in pain about what has happened. The way I'm breaking down chapter 4 for us is this. It should be on the screen. In chapters 1 through 11, you see that the wreckage of sin on society. In, in verse 12 through 16, you see the effects of sin within the leadership of Israel. And in 17 through 22, you see uh, sin and hope. Chapter 4 begins with a word that we've circled back on. It's difficult to translate. Uh, and it's, in our English, it's how. Echa or it's, it's a very Hebrew back of the throat that I listened to a few times on the computer and was like, yeah, I don't, I don't have that. It's a cry, it's a shriek, it's a lament. Theologian Chris Wright says this, no English word quite captures it, though the older alas came close. O and ah are too trivial. The common rendering how treats it as an exclamation but the word also contains an element of questioning. How? Why? It stands at the head of the three darkest chapters in the book, one, two, and four, and carries a sense of how come. How can this possibly have happened? This is baffled pain, astonished suffering, lament mingled with protest, disbelief, and questions. And I want to just pause for a second and... and let us all know there's room for that in the Christian faith. The Christian faith has its roots in Judaism and within the scope of theology and life, there's room for this. You hear what he say? Baffled pain, astonished suffering, lament mingled with protest, disbelief, and questions. There's room there. And isn't that good news? Because that is life. Not all the time, thank God for that, but often. Some of you, even this week, to varying degrees, as I look out and see some of your faces in your stories of what you endured this week of going, some of you have had horrible weeks this week. And you come in this morning and you go, we're in lamentations, really? Like, I'd like a better feely kind of thing. Again, we'll get there, I know. I felt that. But there's room for it. Isn't that good news? And some of you that are like on cloud nine and you're doing great and you're like, lamentations? It's coming for us all. There's room for it. And so as the writer continues, these first 11 verses capture the utter devastation from sin and God's judgment on all of society. And so we need to yet again see and understand the effects of sin that happens within a people. Again, Anthony has reminded us that sin has a shelf life, that it goes sour. And in Israel, a society that was affluent and rich and under the blessing of God was brought to ruin in one of the most radical reversals in human history. And, and as you were merciful, I think, to Mike, was it last week or the week before? I was merciful to Larry and Jorgen to not give the worst of the worst. We'll get there in a second. But what you saw in Israel was there was abundance and material blessing that then was warped into idolatry. They had transitioned from a dependency on God and departed that to devotion to idols and other gods. 
And so the judgment and siege that came upon them, though I'm sure was surprising to a certain degree, didn't come as a surprise because the prophets had cried out against them and warned them. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all who ate of it, incurred guilt, and disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. So it wasn't always this way. They were devoted and set apart and following after God. What happened? In a word, idolatry. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So they did this grand exchange of God for idols. They had left the fountain of living waters that he promised to be for them, and carved out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. And so they were warned again and again and again, and a return would have been welcomed, but if not, it was promised would lead to ruin. And so there's a reminder for us all, woe to us who do not welcome a warning and return through Repentance, one of the big themes all throughout Scripture, that repentance is the road back to renewal. Confession and repentance is a life-giving good thing within God's people. And just let that be in our mind, like burned into our minds personally, but also if or when we're sinned against and somebody says they're sorry, they confess, they, they come forward, there's celebration that happens there. But they did not. And so the reality of sin are felt in every corner of there in our society. And in verse 1 through 11, you see that. The temple, the gold is gone, precious stones are scattered, children are starving, there's utter pain, chaos, and bleakness. If you have your Bible open and you want to see the worst of the worst, Lamentations chapter 4, verse 6 through 10. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now, their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It has become dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away piercing by lack of the fruits of the field. And then this, the hands of compassionate woman have boiled their own children. They, have, they became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. That's how bad it got in Jerusalem under the siege. A complete reversal of the goodness and glory and blessing that they had experienced to where women were resorting to cannibalism of their own kids for sustenance. 
Let that sit in. It's something that we only, many, most of us have only experienced by going somewhere else or watching a documentary or the news. Something that none of us, by God's grace, have experienced that kind of desolation. And if we squint in verse 11, we might see a little bit of hope in good news. Verse 11, the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. What? You just said good news, and then you read that. How's there good news in that? Well, it says in this word, full vent to his anger, pouring out his wrath. The word used there is the same as what is used in chapter 3, verse 22 through 23. If you don't remember that, I'll read it for you. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so the writer of Lamentations is saying that God's mercy, his compassion, goes to infinity. It never runs out. It's never going to dry up. It will always be there. It's renewed every single morning. In verse 11, the same word of, of running out, he says that has happened with God's anger. It's done. It's over with. Judgment is complete. There was and there is an end of God's wrath for these ancient Israelites. And in going down and burning even the utter foundations, there's a chance then of a fresh start. And reading that, it reminded me of a quote from one of my favorite commentators, Derek Kidner, from the book of Ecclesiastes, where he talks about the judgment of God in Ecclesiastes 12. He says this, On this rock that God will judge everything, we can be destroyed. But it is a rock, not quicksand. There is a chance to build. And so when we experience, and when God's people experienced his judgment, that wreckage in a life, whether due to our sin or the sin around us, it's not always your fault, but there's a chance to build, to rebuild. I've said often, if there's a breath and a pulse, change is possible. But that doesn't mean the lament is over. It moves from sin in society in 1 through 10 to sin and leadership. That these lamentations are covering all of Israel's lives. 12 through 16 show every aspect of life in Israel was negatively impacted by a leadership that was lost. And again, this was talked about by Jeremiah. In chapter 6, verse 13 through 15, Jeremiah gives this assessment and warning and in God's word to them. He says, From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From a prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time I will punish them they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So Israel's kings did not hear, heed God's word and were confident in themselves. 
the prophets and priests, those who were supposed to see, were blind. Those who were supposed to speak truth, told lies. Those who were supposed to be holy and set apart were defiled. The healers were diseased. And the resulting effects of that were a, a scattering. No favor among God's people. Bad news for them and the nation. And all, all throughout Scripture, what we see is the leadership of Israel had a direct impact on God's people for good or ill. And it's similar to what we see today and is true of just about all leadership. As the leadership is, so goes the people. And we, I think, in the, the 21st century American evangelical church struggle with what to do with this and the qualifications of a pastor and Timothy and Titus and, and what to do if or when there's sin and failure. On one hand... In our day, we have a cancel culture that wants to crucify anybody who is out of bounds or messes up. But then there's another side that wants to whitewash moral failure and false teaching in the name of an individual or a pastor having reach or impact or that they mean well and just go, well, they said sorry, so let's reinstate them right into ministry. We've seen that. More often it's, no, they're right, you're wrong, you leave. And you can reference uh, a sermon from, I don't know, weeks, months ago of how to get me fired. That wasn't the title of the sermon, that was just one of the rabbit holes we went down. <laughs> and, and it's funny, I'll, I'll let you know that uh, I, I don't actually have veto power within this church. I, I like to think I do sometimes, but I don't. <laughs> Uh, but I did use the veto power that I don't have one time that I can remember. And Anthony wanted to do six weeks in Lamentations. And I looked at it and I said, it's five chapters, buddy. We're going to do five chapters. <laughs> we're not continuing this after Easter. We're, we're, we're going to do it and we're done. So that's authority at work. Big baby. Big baby, Anthony says. Just merciful on behalf of the people, that's all. You all can thank me later. The rabbit hole is that within our own church's structure, there is built-in accountability to it all with membership elders and all that. And if you have questions around that, we, again, that's why I mentioned coffee earlier. But, but we don't know what to do with all of that. But we are to be shaped and informed by Scripture. And what we see is leaders' actions have consequences, and reconciliation, and especially restoration, takes time. Most people, pastors, you can extend it, politicians, any leaders don't seem to be okay with the slowness of the Bible. Right? How long did this judgment take? The letter comes and it's 70 years. I like that idea that if a pastor fails, 70 years. But I'm going to be dead. Exactly. It's a bad joke, but I, I'm saying that to myself in the mirror. <laughs> oh boy. That one's got legs, doesn't it? Oh. The Bible doesn't ask leaders to be perfect, but it does ask them to be accurate and when not accountable and repentant or removal. And so there is, again, within our church and, and 
this is why church structure really does matter. And I know some of you more than others like to nerd out on this. Uh, many people don't care, and that's understandable. Uh, like top-tier nerddom, Josh Solon's one of our elders, which it's like a glorious gift that he brings to the table of, of knowing church history and seeing and how and it matters and, and why we need to set it up for, for strength and, and long-term health. When that's ignored, there's problems that precipitate around it all. Again, Bible doesn't ask leaders to be perfect but accurate and when not accountable and repentant or removal. Why? Because God cares about people. God cares about people. And what's the sad reality about a leadership that has lost this way is often who is impacted are the quote-unquote innocent. Not that innocent in the sense of no sin, but those who, who don't deserve to be hurt and wounded by it. What do you see in Lamentations? Again, again, women and children are the hardest hit by the failure of the leaders. As the leadership goes, it, it affects the people on the quote-unquote bottom of society first. And it's those people, if you see in Scripture, that God elevates and says, these are important in my kingdom. These have first place. These are at the front of the line. And so the chapter 4 shows the writer crying out because society is wrecked, the leadership stinks, and everybody is affected negatively by it. And we don't get the calling to mind and having hope shown in the middle of chapter 3. It's kind of like Lamentations is like a Cormac McCarthy book. Anybody like Cormac McCarthy in here? Okay, yes. Uh, he's just bleak and, and shows the utter devastation of society in his books. And it reminds me, the opening of his book, The Road, you may have seen the, the movie. He says, Nights dark beyond darkness, and the days more gray, each one than what had gone before. Like the onset of some cold glaucoma dimming away the world. That's a guy who knows how to write. That's what you see in this book. And I have either a gift or curse of attempting humor and, and wanting to see the bright side in some sorts of things, make it a little bit like a, a Disney movie. But even through the bleakness, uh, we can see maybe one or two little faint rays of light. It's, it's, it's almost, and this is slightly trite, but it's almost like uh, this week of Prescott trying to make it spring, where you're like, you can do it. It's like, nah, we're going to snow more. You're like, please, just 60 degrees. It's almost April. That's all I'm asking. It's like, mm, maybe, maybe next week. And so how so? You, you, if you recall what Larry and Jorgen read for us, you go, I, I didn't see any hope of that. Because verse 17 through 20 Recount the fall of the nations, sin and judgment affected the hope of God's people, but it didn't utterly extinguish it. And then in verse 21, we see a, a word that's foreign to this book. It says rejoice. You go, oh, that's, that's good. That's a good word. But it's confusing because if you know your Bible, Edom are not friends of God's people. Edom our descendants of Esau and historically were, again, enemies and in, in irritants for the people of God. And so that's where I bring in Chris Wright, who's a theologian. He'll help us with all of this. He says, rejoice and be glad. 
That's the first surprise. Could there be any human being capable of rejoicing in the midst of the horrors described in this whole chapter? The words shock us until we see to whom they are addressed, Lady Edom. And then we perceive their sharp irony. From the prophet Obadiah and others, we know that Edom not only refused to help Judah when Nebuchadnezzar invaded, but rejoiced at the downfall of Jerusalem, took advantage of it to seize some of Judah's wealth, and assisted in the capture of the fleeing population. Go ahead then, says the poet. Enjoy your treachery while you can, but know that God's judgment is coming your way soon. The cup was the standard metaphor for the wrath of God, metaphorically filled with a wine that would lead to a drunkenness and exposure. And then, out of the blue, a single line of assurance to Lady Zion herself, while Edom's judgment is yet to come, Judah's is completed. And so in verse 21 and 22, we see that good news for God's people. Verse 22, the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish, he will uncover your sins. As scripture tells us, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, he will repay. And as we saw in verse 11, God's judgment on his people is finished. Exile is not forever. The enemies of God's people would be dealt with one day, so they looked forward to the day when God would rescue and restore. And again, we have to remind ourselves that his timeline is often a lot slower than our timeline, what we would desire, especially today. And so again, I'm not attempting to paint bright colors on the book, but we can look from this bleak chapter, this bloody chapter, and see out on the horizon one that was I don't know that it was discernible in their time, and as they write this, that, you know, the, the writer, poet, Jeremiah, will say that they would have seen that and go, oh, great, now we have hope, let's, you know, I, I don't think they were there it, it changing the playlist towards happy songs yet. It was a gray, bleak, horrible reality that light probably would have been indiscernible and, and unable for them to see it, but there was a light at the end of the tunnel. And you can, we can directly trace from these lamentations. We can go from there to the deeply sacrificial, life-giving love of Jesus. We see again, what is this, 586, that almost 600 years later, one would emerge. There's a truth-telling prophet, a perfect priest, and a righteous king who came into history. Philip Ryken, and I'm stealing this from Anthony's notes on Lamentations 4, full disclosure. He says, at their best, the prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Testament foreshadow Christ's comings. At their worst, they showed why his coming was so necessary. Jesus enters into the mess. His own family flees at the massacre of innocents as they go to Egypt. Jesus encountered wicked leadership at every level, and he brings good news, that God himself sees it all. He knows, and he's willing to experience it himself and cover it. As hard as your path may have been or currently is, you have a God 
that is not content to sit on a throne up in the heavens and tell you some, some truisms, give you a little chicken soup for your teenage soul. He gets off of his throne and he comes alongside you in your tears. Every single one of them. He sees your story and another week and another loss and another fear and another difficulty and another reality where you go, is this ever going to change? Fortunately, unfortunately, he doesn't answer all the questions, but he's with you in the midst of it. He sees and he knows. And he promises that in trusting him, he'll take the judgment that we deserve and he'll somehow, some way, by the power of his spirit, implant to us peace and hope that he, Jesus, would endure the shame of sin and the judgment that we deserve and he gifts to us righteousness and says in our mess today that one day it's all going to be sorted out and dealt with. Either the cross will take care of it or in eternity he will sort through it all. And until then, he gives us a solid and steadfast, constant hope in him. And so we have the difficult joy, the painful freedom to put our roots in him. Until he returns or calls us home, there's this very real tension that we then live in here today. Because there is such glorious good news for us all in Jesus. And if you don't follow Jesus, he's, he's out there saying, I'm going to be with you and for you just cling to me. Just trust me. Allow me to forgive you. You don't need to work harder. You don't need to try more. Like, just trust and follow Jesus. Be my disciple. He's inviting all of us to today. And in that, as we look forward to this hope where he's going to make all things new, there's this tension as there was for the people of this time, where Anthony again read for us, and you look in Jeremiah chapter 29, 30, 31, where there's this tension like, okay, you're now in Babylon. What do you do? Rage? Coup? Again, you know, take down the king? No, he says, seek the welfare of the city, welfare of the city. pray on its behalf, while realizing who and where the ultimate solution is. And so, yeah, it's weird because here and now does matter, but it is not necessarily ultimate. That's where Paul would encourage believers to not lose heart, to not grow weary, to keep following after Jesus and working for the good of our neighbors and those that are around us while knowing that ultimate and forever hope and joy and rest and peace is in eternity. And so we can enter into the broken areas of society of our own lives and those around us with lament and a real, tangible, non-trite hope. One that doesn't attempt to accelerate that process, but looks forward to the day when Jesus will sort it all out. We can still directly trace their lament and our lament to the deeply sacrificial, life-giving love of Jesus. I came across a song this week that speaks to it, and since Anthony read a poem and 
I'm insecure and I want you all to like me. I figured I could read a poem too. <laughs> the Porter's Gate is the band, Daughters of Zion is the song, and they said this. Out of the miry clay, we will rise up someday. Sorrow won't always last. The dark will surely pass. Woe to the wicked ones for what their hands have done. God is our righteous judge, and he will raise us up. Let's pray. And so, Father in heaven, we do thank you that even though we might not be the most comfortable with this book and its pain and struggle and the reality of the horrors of history, that you, God, still place it before us. And in that, we can be sobered by the reality of sin and encouraged in the hope we have in you. And so I pray that this, this book would steady our souls and give within us a, a little bit more seriousness of how we approach life and sin, that where there is sin and unhealthy habits, God, we would confess and repent and follow after you, and we thank you that there is such a warm welcome in so many instances in Scripture that, that welcome weary sinners that come confessing to you. Story after story of a gracious, merciful high priest who knows our weakness and invites us to find help and grace in our time of need. So may today, as we respond now through song and communion, may that be for us, an act of faith and repentance and confession. We say, God, this week, this day, we have fallen short. We have not loved you as we should. We have idols. And today we cast them down and ask that you would cleanse us yet again, encourage us, strengthen us, and establish us, and help us to show the world around us the goodness of our Savior and Lord and friend. Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.